gonna be just like senior year, except for funner. Hey everyone, I'm Kendra. And I'm Mercedes, and we have a little something special for you this week. We are so excited to be chatting with the incredible writer, director, and rom-com aficionado, Jonah Feingold. Yes, welcome, Jonah. Instead of talking about just one rom-com today, we're going to go on a journey with Jonah through the history of rom-coms. Yes, enjoy! Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. <laughs> I know, seriously, me too. Hello, Jonah, how are you doing today? Hi, I'm, I'm doing great. I uh, that, was, that was a lovely intro, and it, wow, going through the history of rom-coms, I mean, it's, it's both educational and fun, which I think is what we want to do with our life. Exactly. That's all we want to do. And it's so interesting, too, because it's not super common to see men who love rom-coms, but you are one. And I'm so curious as to what peculiar your interest in them. Well, there's the, you know, internal answer and there's like the external answer. The real answer is probably that my parents have a wonderful meet cute, which I know we all know what that means, obviously, on this rom-com podcast. But uh, now they're divorced, which is always fun. So it taught me that love is just a... Uh, just a concept that's sold to us by uh, holiday cards. I'm, I'm just kidding, obviously. Love is real. <laughs> but no, I think the reason is there's actually two, probably two reasons. One, I grew up loving very feel-good movies. I am super dyslexic. I can never read as a kid. So uh, I obviously resorted to the Disney, uh, you know, the, the family, Jumanji, Star Wars, all these things. And I just really enjoyed a happy ending and a, and a, a heartfelt tale and rom-coms tended to do that. They also had comedy because it's rom-com. And so I also love to laugh and escapism. And I think obviously, candidly, not to jump right into it in the first two minutes, but I think there is an element where seeing how my parents' love story has developed throughout their lives has sort of made me more vulnerable to understanding how I can exemplify that in a movie. And then there's sort of the element of in film school, exactly as you guys said, not many people are raising their hands saying they want to make rom-coms. And it has every element as a genre that I could possibly want to play with as a filmmaker in terms of that you can use magical realism, you can subvert the genre, you can have moments of horror and thrill and action set pieces. But there's always going to be the they meet, they break up, they get back together element. A lot of words for probably what, you know, the question, but I love rom-coms because they, they make you feel good. And I think that that's the kind of movies that I like to watch and like to make. Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. We'd love to emphasize joy here. What advice would you give to other aspiring filmmakers who love the genre and are really passionate about this genre? That's a great question. Uh, my advice would be from a filmmaker standpoint uh, or yeah, from filmmakers, I just go make, I mean, just, it sounds so simple. I mean, all I do is try to give advice on TikTok for this kind of thing. And it's always tough because it's hard. I love to your TikToks. <laughs> You're so great. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Uh, here's the thing. Rom-coms, as we're going to discuss, have taken many different forms throughout the years. And we are in the rom-com resurgence because I think the way that we navigate dating, modern love, the way we're self-aware about romance and being able to communicate with each other as human beings has changed that the genre can use a little bit of, you know, of sprucing up. It can use some edits. And so that creates wonderful opportunities for filmmakers to come in with new visions, new styles. And if you love rom-coms, one, Get educated on the process. You can start by listening to this episode where we're going to break it down. But go watch movies from the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Go watch, you know, 27 Dresses. You know, don't be afraid of whatever the rom-com is. And then go figure out what your story is and what you want to say. And always remember that the best rom-coms are made when the filmmaker's voice is the driving narrative. I think we'll probably notice that as a key element as like what makes a great rom-com is a strong perspective and 
authorship over the film. So if you like rom-coms, don't be afraid to go make them. Don't let anyone tell you that it's not the genre to go make because one, no one knows what they're talking about ever. And two, tons of rom-coms have been made every single year since movies have been made. So there's always going to be a market for them. It's so interesting that you have so many elements that make up a good rom-com in your mind. And I'm curious, what is your favorite rom-com? What is a rom-com that you feel like really embodies all of those elements that you can watch over and over? Or just one that's just a simple classic that you're like, no other rom-com could ever touch this one? That is, you know, there's the there's the go-to answer, which is obviously When Harry Met Sally is the holy grail of rom-coms. I think it's because of its simplicity, because the way it navigates both the romantic and comedy side of things. And when we get to talking about sort of the process of that I've had in the past couple of years of making rom-coms, it sounds so obvious, but the idea of juggling comedy and romance is actually the exact chemical balance that I feel like make or breaks a rom-com. If you have too much comedy, then it's just a broad comedy and it lasts, it lacks the heart. If you have too much romance, then it becomes a romance movie. So the idea of balancing the two is perfectly chemically done in When Harry Met Sally due to the cast, the writing, the direction, the behind the scenes people, you know, making that film more off the beaten path. Obviously, I mean, The Apartment is a classic. I love that movie because it invented so much. I mean, the best ending to a movie ever. You know, if you're listening, go on YouTube, look up the apartment ending. You don't even need to see the whole movie. If you watch those five minutes, you're going to feel something. And then, of course, perhaps even more slightly obscure is a film called L.A. Story, which is Steve Martin. It's a movie about him sort of navigating love in L.A., but it has wonderful use of magical realism that I just lose my mind over. I look at it, you know, he has the L.A. billboard talking to him in the lights and I throw stuff at the screen because I'm like, ah, oh, that's so good. That is so good. And I replicate that in Dane in New York when the subway signs start to talk to our characters. So I would say it's when Harry met Sally, the apartment, can LA story. Also, really random one is the first five minutes of 101 Dalmatians, the animated movie. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you guys want to talk about that? That is a masterclass in rom-com storytelling. The dogs twisting their owners with a leash <laughs> in the park with the music and the hand drum. That is the essence of what I love about, about love stories. Those are great. It's wonderful. Oh, my gosh. I love hanging out with two other cinephiles who just love rom-coms. What, what are both of your favorite rom-coms? Just now that, we, now that I've revealed that. Mercedes, you go first. Cause... So I'm a big When Harry Met Sally, obviously, but also While You Were Sleeping is major. Oh, my God. The score <laughs> of that movie is so good. I just met it's... the producer of that film and, and nerded out forever. Um, huh? Oh, my God. I love that movie. And I think it's so underrated. It's such a good sweater movie. And mm -hmm. Bill Pullman, man, I love it. It's great. So I always tell Mercedes this. I am a huge fan of rom-coms where you can see inside the relationship. I don't really like rom-coms where like they're enemies the entire time and then at the end they get together. I like to see their relationship transform. So because of that, I would have to say going the distance with Justin Long and Drew Barrymore is one of my favorite rom-coms. Also, Fever Pitch. I freaking love Fever Pitch. Oh, my God. Yes. Can this be a... Okay, hold on. All right. So, first off, love going the distance. L.A., New York. Or L.A., New... Yeah, right? Where they... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was... It was yeah. Well, yeah, L.A., New York, and San Francisco. Mm -hmm. San Francisco, New York. And then they moved to L.A. And it's great because they started dating, I believe, on that film. Where... Um, I believe that's when they started to date each other in real life. Which obviously says, okay, the connection was there. The scenes did their job. And then you said Fever Pitch. That movie is 
fantastic. Fantastic. It yeah. is so good. And everyone sleeps on it. Also, too, Jonah, you should know I should preface this. I am the biggest Justin Long fan in the world. I am. He is my all-time ultimate rom-com king. I love him. I've watched everything that he's in. He has a direct line to my funny bone. He can literally <laughs> talk about nothing. I would think it's the funniest thing in the world. So, Justin Long, if you're listening to this. Okay, ironic because you did pick two movies with Drew Barrymore. I so, <laughs> so now I'm like, I thought you were going to say Drew. Um, <laughs> The uh, line where, you know, the kid says to Jimmy Fallon, you know, I think that some is a great rom-com line. He goes, um, you love the socks, but have they ever loved you back? Yeah. Uh, one yes. line. <laughs> one line. Brilliant. All over. <laughs> I love a baseball fan. Like just, and their chemistry is great, but great movies. Okay. We're in, this is a good vibe. We're going to have a, a good time yeah. here. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I think it's time to jump into really discussing rom-coms through the ages. I think it's our moment now. So let's really get into these older ones, the OG, our black and whites. Let's think like 30s, 40s, this whole era. What are we thinking? What's like the must-see movie from this early era? I feel like the movie that started it all, and this is what they teach you, you know, they like to tell you in the film school, but I think It Happened One Night is a great example of a film. Yes. Mm. that sets a lot of different tones up in terms of or elements up that will define great rom-coms mm -hmm. two movie stars which i think is a very important thing that we're going to particularly want to talk about in the 90s 2000s era and less so today which is the interesting part of all things and sets up this idea of it's that you know she plays an heiress and she runs away from her family and the guy that she like you know clark gable i believe is the guy who's like he's a reporter and he's like writing about this whole story so he's basically using her for the story, which is the first, I believe, instance of the classic rom-com trope of you used me for a bet. You know, you use me for the article, you use me for a bet, you use me for this. And I think that that's the first instance of where we see that trope of what we have so greatly executed the years later in um, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days and 10 Things I Hate About You, amongst other movies where people use each other for some charade. You know, I, what do you guys think? Okay, have you seen Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans? It was the first movie to ever win an Oscar. It's from 1927. That's also a very film school movie. I went to I went to Syracuse University. I went to film school there. Nice. We had to study that movie, but I rewatched it again this past weekend, and it's so beautiful. I remember that movie just sticking with me throughout the years, where essentially this man is married to another woman, and he's having an affair, and they plot to, like, kill his wife, and the whole movie is really about him and his wife falling in love again. And I think people wow. would actually just, like, classify this as just a romance movie and not necessarily a rom-com, but there are comedic moments in it, and because it's from 1927... There's no dialogue. Like, they're still using title cards. And it's so amazing oh my God. how much love is conveyed in this movie with absolutely no dialogue. It is just so moving and beautiful and amazing. And the chemistry between the two lead characters is palpable. So if you guys have not seen it or you haven't seen it in a while, please, please, please go back and watch it. It is so heart-wrenching. Love. Sunrise, a song of two humans. That's what that's a... Uh, okay. Yeah, it's, it's just going to be called Sunrise because they changed the title like years and years later, but... Okay. Song of Two Humans. Yeah. Cannot wait to watch that. Never seen, yeah. I don't remember seeing that. It's a fantastic wreck. Yeah. yeah. It's beautiful. Oh it's goodness. beautiful. I'm major on the screwball comedies. I think they're must-sees. And I just think 
the dialogue is so rapid and that makes them so exciting because it just shows the chemistry there like when you have such good dialogue I don't know that's how you're seeing these love stories unfold for me like I'm really connected to just the back and forth and the banter that you see between the two leads so those really stick with me and they're just so silly and chaotic I feel like I have like a rom-com king and queen through every generation that we're going to talk about Mm. yeah so I am obsessed like this is unhealthy actually I am obsessed with Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. They did 10 movies together during their lifetime, and I actually started tap dancing because of them. One of my favorite movies that they did was Swing Time. They just have an amazing Mm -hmm. dance number right in the middle there. And I just feel like they were kind of like my, because theirs was like physical comedy, right? So it it was like slapstick. It was so good and so original. But also too, because they did so many movies together, like you could tell that chemistry was so genuine through all of their films, and I could watch them forever. So Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers, they're my rom-com king queen during this early era. We watched Top Hat when we were, before making at midnight, Top Hat was on the list. That's Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, right? Yes, yes, yes. yes. And I think your point about rom-com pairings, like it's almost as if you're not supposed to just make one rom-com, that if you're an actor and you decide you're going to be a rom-com star, find your partner for the dance (laughs) and be prepared to stay on the dance floor for a while. Starting with them, going all the way to, you know, to the Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, you know, all the way to, I mean, McConaughey and Kate. Yeah, (laughs) you should do multiple. By the way, I see why it happens, because when you find two people that have on-screen chemistry, Mm -hmm. it makes the production process and the green light process so much easier. So you don't spend weeks, months trying to find a, you know, camera actors, then pair up their schedules. Like it can be reverse engineered both to the experience of the audience and to the way the movie even get, comes together and gets made. And I'm excited to kind of figure out once we get to the to the current present, who we think those pairings currently are. Ooh. Um, Ooh. <laughs> what do you think makes these early rom-coms so memorable and carry mm. through like these elements from these classics are seen in contemporary rom-coms now? And I don't know if it's just like the authenticity of the time that it carries through or like like what elements of those classics really are sticking through my first guess would be one if you like rom-coms that means you're probably a nostalgic romantic person so you romanticize cinema so you're already romanticizing whatever you're about to watch because it's billy wilder's the apartment you know because you've seen the posters growing up you've heard about it there's a myth and lore to it there's casablanca which is another great rom-com you know less comedy certainly romance Mm -hmm. but that balance still exists so therefore, it does really work. And it's a love triangle. People love love triangles. And so like, I think when you go back and watch these movies, there's inherent romance to them, but they're also just done at such an excellent quality level. We're talking about all the best ones. There's There yeah. are hundreds of rom-coms made. You can go watch Michael Curtis, I believe, did Casablanca, made a bunch of other rom-coms. They're on HBO Max. They're not as good, you know? <laughs> and you can go watch them and you can see that they're good, but they're not special in the same way. And so I think it's a matter of we're looking at filmmakers making movies at the highest level in the same way that in 100 years, people will come back and look at, you know, they'll look at When Harry Met Sally and You've Got Mail and The Holiday and say these are made at the highest level. That's why they're so good because the craftsmanship behind them is is so strong. Absolutely. Jonah, I want to know if you're if you'd be willing to get vulnerable with us. Would you describe yourself as a hopeless romantic? And have you ever been in love before? And how would you describe that feeling? I would say I'm a hopeful romantic as opposed to hopeless romantic. I I certainly uh, believe in love. I think, you know, have I been in love before? I've been in love in the sense that I thought I was in love. And then I look back at that experience and I say that probably was more like lust, you know, less love or like really in like or more infatuation. I love a lot of things, you know, I love a lot of people, but have I been like deeply in love to the extent that it's, 
I don't know. It's like the it's a classic question. What is love? Is love when someone's obsessing over you or, you know, is not to quote Wedding Crashers, is true love one soul's recognition of a counterpoint in another? <laughs> I'm dying. <laughs> That's a bad <laughs> And uh, Greg, they both like the color green, like money in Craig's eyes. Um, <laughs> that movie I can quote the entire time, unfortunately, as a, as a teenager from 2005. But I don't know if I've ever really been in love. And people always ask, like, why do you love rom-coms? You're such a romantic. Yet at the same time, I have severe difficulty in my dating life because I have a really difficult work-life balance in, from a mental capacity as a filmmaker where I don't know how to do it. And I ask a lot of my friends in the industry, how do you focus on somebody yet also focus on your work? You know, people work hours in normal jobs. Oh, I work 12 hours, I clock out at seven, it's done. As a filmmaker, as, a, as an artist, we're just trying our best to make it as an artist, be our own boss. There is no off switch. Yeah. If you get notes, that's the most important thing to me. And I like it. I like to do it. I like to be worrying about the movie. So I am sort of looking for a partner in crime. That's the closest thing I can kind of figure out to what love is, but definitely a hopeful romantic. I do believe in the, in happy endings in terms of you kiss under the stars and, you know, there's fireworks. I want to make I a clone that. of you, Jonah. <laughs> well, I got some, yeah, I have some, I have some enhancement <laughs> ideas. Yeah. Um, currently 6'2". I think I'd like to be 5'8". <laughs> it's so funny. I have a, I just talked to a girlfriend recently who unfortunately broke up with this guy that she was seeing because they were aligned on their goals of wanting to be married and wanting to have a family, but he did not live a life that was reflective of that. And mm. she said, sometimes love doesn't work out simply for no other reason other than the fact that, like, there's just no space for it. Right. And I'm curious your thoughts on that. Like, he just had kind of like what you were saying. He had a job. He had just very crazy hours. And even for him to spend like two days with her, he had to get a bunch of work in the week before so that he could take those two days off. And she just realized he didn't live a life that was reflective of the things that he wanted in his future. So as a filmmaker and artist and someone who is not like on a timeline on a schedule like that, what do you think of, of making space for love? I got to imagine it's natural. You know, I used to host a dating podcast back in the day for Hinge. And I said a lot of stupid shit on that podcast. And like, that's because you don't really know what you're talking about until a certain experience or age wealth. And I think that you try, you try to think that if there's that expression where it's like, if they, if they would, they could. And this is, of course, a hot topic on the internet and in the, the comments section for things. And I, I don't know. I think that you've got to be aligned in, in your, that's why I say partner in crime, because if you're someone's partner, it doesn't matter. You know, it, it's always going to be aligned. You know, if it's the specific minutiae of making time for each other, it's really hard. I've always had the idea for a rom-com where it's a lawyer and a doctor and they're trying to date, but oh, yeah. that's, that's almost impossible, right? Because I mean, these people are constantly working different hours, you know, constantly towards their goals. But what if they really love each other? Can they make it work if they really love each other? And I don't know the answer to that question. What I do know from a scientific data-driven standpoint is that people in the film industry who work together, that can work. That could be successful. You look at Nancy Myers and Charles Scherer, who are now divorced, but they did it for a little while. You know, I have Frank Marshall. Kathleen Kenny Frank Marshall. Mm -hmm. They're still together. There you go. So that's, I have two friends who, you know, two wonderful producers who are married and very successful. And that's because they're partners. And so that's the only thing I can, because otherwise it's just speculation. But I think if you find someone that you can inherently share your life with, you can make it work. But in the case of your friend, I, I, I don't know. That doesn't sound like, you know, it sounds like they're making the right decision for now, at least. Absolutely. 100%. Thank you, Jonah. Of course. Thanks for tuning into our dating podcast, uh, Squarespace. <laughs> Use 10% off code. Uh, <laughs> love. <laughs> All right. We're going to move over into the 60s to the 80s. Okay. This is a really big time for me because whenever I get asked a question, like what time period do you wish you could go travel back in time to? I don't have a lot of options. But mm. I would love to have been a teenager in the 80s. I would have had Molly Ringwald on my wall. Rob mm -hmm. would have been 
my celebrity crush, Andrew McCarthy. Like, I would have been such a huge fan of the Brat Pack. There's just so much that happened in the 80s. But we had to start in the 60s first. I want to know, what do you think of iconic older rom-coms like Breakfast at Tiffany's? Um, that's a, that's a great question. And I think that that era of, they're so weird to watch because they are obviously both deeply romantic in their music and their shots and their execution. I mean, the shots in Breakfast at Tiffany's are some of the most iconic shots in cinema and the energy they, they emit you know, again, many years later, maybe we're looking at them through different lens. But like from a story standpoint and some of the, you know, performances that don't necessarily hold up as, you know, appropriate, like they're sometimes hard to connect to, in my opinion. I know The Apartment, I believe, is from the 60s, maybe so or maybe the 50s. So that's a movie I, I truly love. Sunday in New York is a really fun movie I recently watched on HBO Max, sort of about just one Sunday in New York between a pilot and like sort of you know revolving door of like a relationship and his sister and there was something really fun about being transported through time element where you do feel like you're in new york in the 60s which was sort of wish fulfillment because it's not like there's no production design it's just what it was yeah, but i you know i'm candidly i'm not an expert in like the 60s era rom-coms of like i don't know how would you define them what do you what speaks to you in terms of that era i think the 60s like this is when the golden age of hollywood is really ending in the mid 60s like counterculture was really big so a lot of people are moving away from the classic Hollywood studio structure of storytelling into a more rebellious. So I don't know if a lot of the rom-coms were as traditional. I also look at like a lot of French New Wave at this time too. Like I think if we look at international films, I mean like Jacques Demy in the 60s was major. And yeah, I think a lot of this, these few decades right here are all the sets that I would like love to live inside. There's an escapism there that I'm like, yes, just put me there. Put me in like the colorful Jacques Demy set. Put mm. me in Moonstruck in the 80s. Like all of those sets where I'm just like, yes, I just want to like sink into these sets. Are there any rom-coms that you guys would want to live inside or like between these decades? Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, I'd have to say Pretty in Pink. That is my mm. yes. Molly Ringwald, Andrew Carthy. I, Mercedes is going to kill me because I talk about them so much. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love hearing Kendra rave about them. It's so much fun because you just see like her eyes light up. It's my whole heart, like my whole body electrifies. I love Pretty in Pink. And I feel like I really relate to her character of just kind of like being from the wrong side of the tracks and being insecure about, you know, the types of clothes that you wear and how you act and how you're perceived in school and getting bullied and experiencing peer pressure and all of those things. I think that is a movie that I relate to the most. And I wish I was kind of like on set for that experience just to yeah. like meet everyone and see everything. So you're a big John Hughes fan. <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I love reading about him and his, I believe he wrote the first draft of, hopefully I'm not butchering this, but the first draft of Home Alone, I think he wrote it in a weekend. You know, he was the ghost writer on the movie called Beethoven that we all maybe grew up watching. A little Luby, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, like went under a pen name for that one, then wrote under one, wrote and directed Under One Dalmatians. Such a prolific voice in the like rom-com genre, but also speaking to the reason I think people are attracted to the genre is that you were talking about these movies like they're rom-coms, but there's a bunch of other, you know, subculture stuff that's sort of being injected into these movies, both in an execution standpoint where the character breaks the fourth wall and they totally reinvent how we do that. Text on screen, the use of rock music, the use of this sort of ensemble cast that he would use multiple times throughout, all hitting within what could be described as a rom-com. So, you know, that's a sort of a pioneering element of, of that for that era. Absolutely. Yeah. Mercedes and I like to play this game called Mary Smooch Ghosts on our podcast, where we talk about who we're going to marry, who we smooch and who we would ghost from the movie and I want to do it with this era of rom-com queens that I've kind of like picked. So we have Audrey Hepburn, Rita Hayworth, and Marilyn Monroe. Who would you marry? Who would you smooch? And who would you ghost? Okay. 
<laughs> Rita Hayworth was the second. Yeah. Okay. And and Marilyn uh, was the third. Okay. Um. Okay. I'm gonna marry Audrey Hepburn. Yes. Um. <laughs> I'm going to. What was this? Smooch. Yeah. Like who would you make Smooch out? With? Ghost. Yeah. Smooch. Rita Hayworth. <laughs> um. And I would ghost Marilyn Monroe. You want to uh, add some explanation to that? I would. Yeah. Well, I think I knew I was gonna ghost Marilyn Monroe because I had the Some Like It Hot coffee table book that is a really in depth look at the making of that movie and that process and. And from what I understand, I don't believe they all had a great time making the movie together. Um, Now, who knows? People say things about people all the time, whether they're true or, you know, this is our industry. I don't know. It's like there's there's tons of different things to say. But um, for me, I think I would rather like big fan of Rita Hayworth, big fan of uh, Hepburn. So it's kind of why would I say no to that? (laughs) What about what about uh, what about you guys? Oh gosh. Okay. So yeah. Go you go first. trio. <laughs> I mean, I think I I would just want to like hang out with Audrey Hepburn all the time just because reading about her, watching like the documentary about her, like the more you learn about her, you're just like, "Oh my gosh, this woman had like the biggest heart." I just want to like mm-hmm. pick her brain learn more about her life and I think she also had an element of like mystery to uh, a lot of people outside of her circle and I think that leads me to curiosity with a lot of actors and celebrities where those are the ones where I'm like I'm really interested in just knowing everything about you so I just Mm. wanted to hang out with her spend all my time with her so I am a huge musical theater fan but we did My Fair Lady my sophomore year of high school and I think I would just want to dance and sing we could have danced all night with Audrey Hepburn I would smooch Rita Hayworth because I would love to have a conversation she was married like eight times she was like the wife of a sultan at one point like she was literally a princess and i just think i would love to just talk to her about her experiences in love and what love means to her because i'm always curious with people who are married multiple times like that to a variety of different people like how does your definition of love and your perception of love change with each person that you're with yeah and Mm -hmm. then I think too, yeah, I would ghost Marilyn Monroe. I don't I need to like pick Marilyn's brain about like all of her ideas of beauty and all the like the lengths she went to accomplish certain forms of beauty and how she stuck with her same like stylist and makeup artist and was so loyal to that and like would never let anybody touch her nose and had like a metal weird shelf placed under her jaw so that she had a perfect jawline at every angle yeah like she just had so many interesting tactics that were so so early on like yeah of course like all these procedures are a lot more normalized now but then a lot more dangerous a lot more just new I didn't know that about her. I didn't know that either. Mercedes is our <laughs> facts queen. She has a huge brain. Smartest person ever. Te- she teaches me something new every single episode. I'm always like, Kendra. Genius. <laughs> no, no. Okay, guys. I think we are moving over into the best age, in my opinion, of rom-coms, the 90s. Wow. And so much happening here because this is like the rise of like Julia Roberts, right? And and Meg Ryan's and, and, and even like the star of Drew Barrymore's. And so I'm just curious, what do you feel like is the best 90s rom-com? You have iconic ones like Notting Hill, 10 Things I Hate About You, She's All That, My Best Friend's Wedding. I know this is a really hard question, Jonah. I'm going to push you here. What is what is the best nineties <laughs> rom-com? Well, I mean, the best is when Harry met Sally. That's from the nineties, right? Or is that eighty nine? Eighty nine, but we can we'll lump eighty nine. Okay. I think eighty nine to early two thousands is like peak rom com for yeah. me at least. That's gotta be it. But I think this is an interesting example of like I guess the question is what happened between the seventies, eighties, and nineties that it sort of teed up the nineties renaissance, and you can even say eighties. I mean, we. I was thinking about the way the rom-coms were received and how seriously they were received. If you look at, and I believe this is 77, but like if you look at Annie Hall, which is a movie that took a bunch of Oscars and like Diane Keaton's performance in that, obviously, like I think she won 
um, and one for screenplay, like that beat Indiana Jones or something like that. I forget what the, or Star Wars. I forget what that beat out. And it's like, okay, maybe that was a pivotal moment where people, actors in the industry said, okay, the rom-com can be elevated. So then you have the 80s and you get things like Romancing the Stone, which is another one that I absolutely love, Kathleen Turner and Michael Douglas. And you get a big filmmaker behind that one, Robert Zemeckis. Um, you have uh, Working Girl, you have Broadcast News, you have these sort of elevated movies coming out. And then you this all adds up. And now you're in the 90s. And now you have a opportunity where agents calling their clients saying, I have a rom-com script from this writer that saw Annie Hall when they were a kid or something and got inspired to write a rom-com. And look, you can go win an Oscar if you do this thing. So then you have this wonderful era of studios now having actors who are interested. So they're going to give a lot of money to people to go make these movies. And that's when you start having Julia Roberts, Reese Witherspoon, Meg Ryan, Sandra Bullock, yeah. who, who just proved weeks ago that she's still the rom-com queen with a $200 million release of Lost City, which granted is just romantic the stone yes it is we don't exactly. have to you know I, I like to i like to give all films <laughs> praise because it's so hard to make a movie but it's, it's so fun movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> down to the plot down to the exact occupation but um so then 90s so then it's like i think we come to the 90s and it's like okay we have money we have audience we have movie stars and this is the movie star era of rom-coms which is why i think it's the greatest because we're now going back to the way it was in the 40s and 50s where you had clark gable and Gregory Peck, you know, these Matthew McConaughey now and Tom Hanks and Will Smith with Hitch. Like, that's a superstar movie, you know, huge budget. So I do think you look at When Harry Met Sally and you got to say this is the it's the most universal question. Is this it does everything right. It, talking about the behind the scenes, you know, Barry Sonnenfeld, a pretty famous director, was the cinematographer of that movie. Rob Reiner and then, of course, Nora Ephron, the most prolific, you know, writer in the game. Nora, like at the height of her, you know, her writing powers, then allows her to go off and direct movies. So I feel like for the 90s, that's got to be it. What do you do? You guys, what do you guys think for the 90s? Like, what is the one? I think since the 90s had a lot of this kind of return to classic literature and classic films with a lot of remakes like Sabrina or like You've Got Mail was adapted from like A Shop Around the Corner. Yeah. And then a lot of like adaptations from classic literature like Shakespeare and Jane Austen. And I think that was just because it was about to be the turn of the century. So it was this, this cling to nostalgia in a really special way. So I think 10 Things I Hate About You like is so solid. And yeah, I just like I think about the 90s and there's so many. And I really think about like Julia Roberts and Sandra Bullock because I think they're like my second and third moms in some way. But I think 10 Things I Hate About You, like it holds down and like we've raved about it so many times. And I just think it's so special. If we are including 89 in this, I'm really happy because Say Anything is my favorite rom-com. I also think it's one of the most underrated rom-coms yes. ever created. This is Cameron Crowe, like beginning Cameron Crowe. Yeah. Um, and you know what, Jonah? I realize why I like you now. You give me Lloyd Dobler vibes. That's what it is. Like, I feel like wow. we, as a society, we don't appreciate <laughs> men like Lloyd Dobler anymore. Men who just like love love, you know? Yeah. Men who just like prioritize love. Men who are just like non-toxic and they're all about just like being the best versions of themselves and being a provider and just offering their hearts like i just i love that so much about lloyd if you go back and listen to our say anything episode i do a whole love letter at the end of it too it's lloyd beautiful he's like <laughs> i absolutely will that's i mean that's a um I got to go revisit that movie. I mean, Cameron Crowe, I actually have a book that's Cameron Crowe interviewing Billy Wilder that I'll, that I'll send you away next time I'm coming to LA that I think you'd love. But that, by the way, that's a character trait that I try to put into the work that I'm working on where it's, 
like male characters who sort of do wear their hearts in their sleeves, you know, in a way that's like not so much about the defense mechanism, a la Hitch, because Hitch had his, you know, dark past. And now he's compensating by that by being this sort of like suave guy who doesn't believe in, in love. And it's sort of a commodity to him. But Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, also talking about John Cusack, Serendipity is an all-time and like oh, so yes. that, that movie. Ooh, that movie's good. It's <laughs> good. Classic. But okay, so it's saying yeah, saying things great. In the 90s, I also feel like we get movies again, movie star, movie star theory, which is I think what we're now trending towards again, where George Clooney and Michelle Pfeiffer do a movie called One Fine Day, which is a wonderful rom-com all that takes place in one day in New York City. You have the Sandra Bullock era. You have not to jump around, but you, you know, there's a whole genre that then gets created between like the, oh gosh, Catherine Heigl, like I call the Ann Fletcher series, Ann Fletcher, wonderful filmmaker behind 27 Dresses and The Proposal. And that kind of, I want to say, feels like a defining moment where rom-coms became more glossy, more set piece driven, you know, 27 dress. There's like the proposal has a ton of physical comedy mm-hmm. in a way that I think the bringing up baby era sort of, yeah. in, you know, injected itself. The towel sequence, for example, um, where she like slips midair and he's naked. Like that's a cartoon, you know, the mm-hmm. grandma and the dog, the dog getting carried away by a falcon. Yet the movie is still, I love that movie. I mean, I love Proposal. I love 27 Dresses. I think the 90s also, that jumped ahead to the dozen, but the 90s, they kept it more grounded. So we, what we saw was like grounded premise. Um, You've got mail. Yes. You know, a shadow of shop around the corner, but still ultimately two people talking. You know, two people talking to each other and gosh, I don't know, the 90s has so, have so many good ones. The Hugh Grant stuff. I mean, music and lyrics. So good. It's overwhelming, honestly. That's why I'm getting <laughs> so much. There's so much in the 90s. And like You've Got Mail really was that first element of like technology and romance blending together, which we see so much more now. Because I mean, we're surrounded by dating app culture. So like, how can you not have it be part of your story? Anytime that I see like any movie now that carries those elements of like chatting and being vulnerable through like text or email or any of that, it's just, it melts my heart because I'm such a you've got mail girl. Yeah. And I think that's like the perfect segue into our next era, which is the 2000s, because you start to see a lot of texting. It's less like passing notes in school and more like texting and IMing and and things like that. And I want to know from you, Jonah, what do you feel like is maybe the most underrated rom-com from the 2000s era? Ooh, underrated rom-com from the 2000s era. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Well, I guess, I mean, Hitch is perfectly rated as a as an all-time classic. Bridget Jones is also probably rated at the, the right spot if that was then. I think, okay, underrated rom I think it's, that's a really great question. I think there's like two types of rom-coms. I think early 2000s, you still had reminiscence of the 90s. You know, that's where you had Four Weddings and a Funeral, I believe, or, you know, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, which I think is a 90s rom-com. Movie stars, very simple premise. That's like the perfect rom-com is How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. There's a clear premise. They have a secret from each other. They're lovers, enemies, lovers again. And you have a script that's so-so. Like if you go look at the dialogue, it's, it's a little on the nose. But what you have is this insane performance where you have two incredible actors just going for it. And that's the hardest thing I think to do. A lot of rom-coms, if they miss, it's because the actors don't go for it in the way that McConaughey and um, Kate Hudson did. And if you go back and look at the early, earliest stuff, the Clark Gable stuff, they're going for it. They're they're being ridiculous. They're you know bringing up baby, uh, His Girl Friday. They're doing the Rit Tat Tat. It's about really going for it in the performance. So 2000s, 
you know, I think I'm looking at like the past 10 years, there's, there's been rom-coms where, uh, I mean, set it up is obviously pointed to as a, as a modern example. I think Zoe Deutsch and Glenn Bell have incredible so good. chemistry. I love the incredible Jessica James, which is a rom-com of sorts on yeah. Netflix. Sort of like an, you know, it, it feels indie, but it's like a great, it's just a great modern sort of love story. What do you guys think in 2000s? It's tougher to point to, to the underrated stuff because I feel like if it's underrated, it becomes rated because there's kind of a lack of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. People are really craving it right now. Like all of those rom-coms from the early 2000s have such like a special element to them now where people are romanticizing them again, which is so good. Like 13 going on 30 has brought like a whole new life because mm -hmm. of TikTok. So like everyone's buying the dress now. And well, I think the same that. with like How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, the yellow dress. Like I've seen so many TikToks of girls being like, I recreated the yellow dress. So I yeah. think, oh my gosh, I'm trying to think of an early 2000s one. Kendra, do you have one in mind? Yeah, I got a couple. Okay, so at the beginning of this episode, I was talking about how I love Fever Pitch. But I think one of the reasons I love Fever mm -hmm. Pitch is because it's so underrated. And I mm. feel like another one is Just Friends with Amy Smart and Ryan Reynolds. Because yes. I think that actually has one of the best declarations of love in a rom-com that I've ever seen. Like at the end when he's like, I just want to go on a date with you. And I don't care if it's during the day or at night, I, as long as it's a real date. And wow. I want to kiss you. I want to tell you how beautiful I think you are. And I want to have babies with you. And I love you. Like, I just think that is so Wow. <laughs> I love that. That was a beautiful performance, by the way. Right. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Where's my last? I, I feel like we weren't thinking of Ryan Reynolds in that way at that time. I think Just Friends was like 2005, maybe. Mm -hmm. And no one was thinking about Ryan Reynolds. But honestly, that was like one of the first times that I saw him in that movie and same with amy smart uh, she was in the butterfly effect i think too around that time with ashton kutcher which is not wrong yeah <laughs> yeah those are two movies that people just really sleep on when we think of that era and i think another one too i may get some flack for saying this but the princess diaries i think oh, it is a probably rape yes. but i don't think people consider it a rom-com like i think rom-coms can also inhabit you falling in love with yourself and just stepping into your the fullness of who you are and your own identity and she really does that in that movie and i'm so proud of me <laughs> I, I, I agree with you i think that's a yeah. huge point like francis ha is not necessarily a movie about yeah. a, you know uh mm -hmm. two characters falling in love but it's i consider that a rom-com you know there's it's a romanticized view of a city it's the comedy of their friendship you know it's about ultimately friends Mm -hmm. um i feel like but those are great ones i also feel like we skipped over sweet home alabama which is sort of like this oh insanely <laughs> elevated i mean the twists right there's so much iconic work being done in sweet home alabama it's not supposed to be that good you know you, 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 yeah that's kind the of what happened in the glass oh <laughs> yeah, my god yeah. so iconic same yeah. thing with the like so i can kiss you whenever i want i love that yes yes <laughs> Yeah, but I do feel as if we're coming to a point where you're going to have these movies. I mean, look at the George Clooney's Julia Roberts rom-com coming out with yeah. Universal, Ticket to Paradise. All the J-Lo getting Marry Me and then the new one that she's that's coming out soon. J-Lo with Marry Me, second act. You know, J-Lo, I think, has been very smart in that she understands that the rom-com is still very prevalent. And I think to your point also, when you're talking about how you hadn't seen Ryan Reynolds, rom-coms for actors can make them movie stars. Agents know this, producers know this, directors know this, like actors are... I think very aware of this, but it's about finding the right material. But it's like from the filmmaking side of it, like the same reason that I was so excited for the opportunity to work with Diego Bonetta on At Midnight because he is an incredibly talented actor. I know. And he's, he's so, he is so gifted. He's so fine. He's, he's a very beautiful man. <laughs> By the way, tough to direct someone that handsome all the time. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> we'd be doing a scene. I'm like, okay, Diego, you really miss her. And I'd be looking up and I'm like, 
God, you're handsome. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> but that's an opportunity. I'm excited because he hasn't really done a proper rom-com like this where it's feel-good, magical, and he's also a producer on the movie, which is amazing. And I'm excited for the world to see him. And I'm also very excited for everyone to see Monica Barbaro, who just did Top Gun, who we she was not attached at first. And we did the whole chemistry read and the casting process. And their chemistry over Zoom, nonetheless, was electric. And she was the, I don't know if I've told this story publicly, but she was the first person we chem read that day with Diego. And I wrote down in my little notes on the chem thing i was like they're fucking incredible this is it i don't want to watch anybody else amazing and um i can't wait for you guys to see that because their chemistry is what i think the staple of a rom-com is is the first thing you got to check is how is the chemistry do they have that and then start to worry about how is the romance working from the romantic scenes how's the comedy working for those scenes and what is your balance going to be for that? Are you going to lean more comedy with romance? Are you going to lean more romance with comedy? But yeah, I forget how we got there. But to the point is, rom-coms can launch actors to movie stardom, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something that some people are forgetting right now. Like all of the best actors started as like rom-com heartthrobs. Mm -hmm. And now I think a lot of actors want to do like the heavy dramas. And I'm just like, no, we need to fall in love with you first before we trust you jumping off <laughs> like a cliff. <laughs> really well said. That is yeah. a good point. That is a good point. And that's a good segue too, because like obviously we're now in this era of like the 2010s to present. And we are now over like, you know, probably just hitting about a hundred years of rom-coms. And I'm curious as a filmmaker, Jonah, what is a rom-com trope or like a rom-com theme that you're kind of tired of seeing that you wish would actually retire? Uh, that's a hard question. I, I I think I'm into the idea of I like a happy ending, but I'm also into realistic endings. It doesn't need to be ultimately sad, but I'm I'm also very here to see very realistic endings. Like, okay, at the end of You Got Mail, they kiss. Here's the example I like to give. They they kiss at the end of You Got Mail. Somewhere over the rainbow, the dog is brinkly is barking. Brinkly. But then camera fades up to the sky. I want camera to come all the way back down to them and. I want Meg Ryan to be like, hey, dude, you my bookshop is you ruined closed. my career. <laughs> yeah, but, but what are we going to do about that? Yeah, I like it, too. Let's go out for a drink. I am currently unemployed. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I think there's an element of like the post meta rom-com of like, what does that act three part two look like in today's age? Because we are all much more realistic. You know, we are realistic people these days when it comes to love. And we are more pessimistic on love, I would say, as a generation. But I think I'm interested in that. I also wonder, you know, do we need to see it in order? Do we need to see them meet, break up and get back together? And I, I was going to say that I am a little tired of the friends to enemy, sorry, enemies to friends trope. But it's important, you know, when you're in the edit and you're making a movie, conflict is such an important part of the story. And I don't know, I feel like, by the way, they don't really teach you how to make rom-coms besides watching them. And I have been fortunate enough to make two, but also like I get mad at myself because I'm like, if only I had known, if only I had listened to the very obvious advice, which again, people say it's all stems from character, but they don't really tell you what that means. It stems in the sense that if you look at the best rom-coms, look at the characters first, and that's going to help inform what the setup is, what the plot is. If you look the other way around, it's probably not going to be that great. And so the idea that they have to hate each other to love each other. Has anyone here on this Zoom started a romance off where you hated the person and then you learned to love them? Like, I, you know, like, I, I guess I'm, I was yeah. like, I've never known anyone like on Hinge. Oh, hey, I, you know, I love that you like to ski. We should go skiing sometime. It's never my parents died in a ski accident. I can't even look at a ski. And then you have to like get forced into like a ski instructor rom-com because you're snowed into this to the slopes. I don't know. But that's why dating in New York starts off with the most, I believe, realistic way that we go on dates now, which is 
you match on app. And so I don't know, but all the tropes, I guess it's not that I want to retire them. I just would like people to not be afraid to subvert them. Yes. I think that way a lot. I think during 2010, that was the fault in our stars, I think. Or was that 2012? Yeah. That was like 2013, 2014. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I just feel like, I don't know why there was, there was all of a sudden a rise of like teenage like, girls with cancer falling yeah. in love. And to me, that is the worst rom-com trope because we all know how it's going to end, but also too, it's so depressing. Like mm -hmm. these are kids at the end of the day who are understanding the inevitability of their demise, which is incredibly depressing. <laughs> and I just felt like it was like Shanley Woodley. It was like Dakota Fanning did well with Jeremy Irvine. Amanda mm. Stenberg did one. Like all mm. of these kids who just have like these diseases and they're going to and they're going to pass away. And I was just like, this isn't giving what I think you want it to be giving. Like <laughs> It's so funny. Kendra and I have talked about this before. Like Blind. before it was like this vampire zombie, like loving the undead. And then it turned into like loving the dying. And I don't know if it was just like people just needed more sorrow or like something slightly more realistic than loving a, like a fantasy character. The, the sad part is, is I believe it's actually just that executives and studios need a concept by which to market their movie. And they are not so down to just l rely on the fact that people want to watch two people fall in love with each other because they have great conversation. Now, granted, that's very hard to do because that script is very hard to write to keep us engaged seeing two people talk. But when you succeed, when Harry met Sally, the Before Sunrise trilogy, you know, when you succeed at it, it's the biggest thing in the world because that's all we really want is to see two people talk and fall in love. So we make it easier on ourselves to hide it with a concept, which does make it easier yeah. and can be very entertaining and very escapist, which is great. But, um, you know, I think, again, the idea is that in the new wave of rom-coms, I do believe that studios are now realizing, and thanks to Netflix mid-budget movies, we're having this opportunity where studios and Netflixes can put 40 to $80 million into a rom-com as a way to attract high-level directors and high-level actors uh, so that you can get that wish fulfillment of seeing two people that you already know fall in love, seeing Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan fall in love again, or seeing Clark Gable and um, Claudette. I'm going to mess up. Claudette, let me look at my notes. Paul Colbert, they fall yeah. in love. Yeah, thank you. Oh, uh, yes. If I fall in love again, you know, seeing <laughs> these people that we, uh, you know, Hugh Grant and Drew Barrymore, we see the people that we want, want fall in love. And I think because they want to get paid, it all does stem from budget ultimately. But now that we have more rom-coms, uh, that probably helps us. Are you a fan of Drake Doremus? I'm a fan of all filmmakers. I love all movies. I, I'm actually not familiar with his work. I love that he does make a movie a year, though. And I think that's something I really try to do. And that it seems like he has his own pipeline where he's able to sort of not self-finance, but he's able to go to the same investors and the same type of people and say let's go do the same thing over again slightly different different actors but that's what i'm trying to build for myself and my career because you know the movie budgets don't need to be huge but i do love the idea of exploring micro concepts like i would love to make I have this dog rom-com that i really want to make and i have this rom-com about the neighbor that lived next door and a rom-com about people that are it's called alternate sides and i thought of it this morning but it's about people that meet during alternate side parking when you have to sit in your car for two hours and that's it it's told in that entire two hour period or probably a 90 minute period and to be able to do that is to create an environment where you make a certain budget movie and you can go back to the same financiers over and over again and so i admire him for that but i don't know his work that well are you a drake dreamers fan uh huge drake dreamers fan. cool i love his work so his movies aren't rom-coms they're more romance dramas i would say than rom-coms but i think he does romance really well because he works with actors that he trusts sorry a little off topic because not no i love that so like romance yeah. like, i'll just... definitely go check out the works and i like that i mean you saying that you like it now makes me like okay now i trust it so like I, i'm yeah. going to yeah <laughs>
We need to dive into the future of rom-coms, where we see them going. Jonah, you can tell us more about yours, all of your fun ideas. Yeah, in recent years, we've seen a resurgence of the genre, definitely on streaming. Where do we see this new era? How do we see it unfold? I do think we're going to have, I think we're going to explore a lot of new sort of like microcosms of minutia of dating. You know, You've Got Mail is going to be remade as, you know, You've Got That Text, which, yeah. by the way, not a bad title, but we'll figure that out. I mean, <laughs> to a certain extent, Dating in New York was intended to do that for When Harry Met Sally, which like sometimes people would compare our movie to that movie, but it's in many ways simply very much intentionally poking a homage to the genre of like two people walking and talking about love under the zeitgeist of the minutia and complications of technology and its impact on romance about, you know, sending the I miss you text on Valentine's Day. Is that really because you miss the person or is that because everyone else is in love around you? And I think that we'll probably see shadows of past 90s and 80s rom-coms because we've already did see it with Lost City and Romance in the Stone. And I think that, by the way, when, when Harry Met Sally came out, the critics wrote that it was just a replica of Annie Hall. So if you go back and like look at those reviews, it's fascinating to see how that kind of comes together. I'm excited because we're going to get a new Nancy Myers movie, which is great. You know, she is such a the holiday, which we sort of didn't talk about. But 2006, if you look at that movie, it is a 1950s ensemble rom-com from the way that it's shot, the way that Jude Law looks on screen. But Jude Law's face Beautiful. next to Gregory Peck, you know, it's the same energy and it's the same hijinks. It's a high, pre high premise, you know, house switch, ridiculous premise. Yeah. And to the listener, I'm sorry that I'm sort of jumping all over the place, but I get passionate about this stuff and my brain doesn't go in order anymore. But we don't talk about Cameron Diaz as doing something that actually defines something in the rom-com that is so key, which is talking to yourself. Cameron Diaz is the queen of talking to herself in movies. I want to say she reinvented it or maybe she crystallized it. But if you go watch The Holiday, actually go watch Something's Gotta Give because I guess Diane Keaton did it in that movie as well. But Nancy Myers will have these scenes where it's a protagonist at the computer. It's two minutes of them talking to herself. Go look at the scene with Cameron Diaz booking her hotel room where she's trying to get out of town. It is just her. Huh. London. That seems nice. Oh. It just looks like the valley. It's just her doing a scene, which is a crazy concept because I've never gone on a movie set and said, okay, Monica, today it's just you talking to yourself. But it's a brilliant, it's so good. It's such a great way to do something. So future of rom-coms. I do believe there will be bigger budgets. Therefore, we're going to attract larger talent in front of and behind the camera to the romantic comedy. I think we're going to get great subversion of genre where we see new types of relationships on screen that we haven't seen before. And, you know, the way the technology has impacted our, our life. At midnight, the Paramount Plus rom-com that uh, is a homage to the classics. It, the whole intention of the film was a very old school nostalgic vibe. It is not by any means modern beyond that it actually sort of pokes a hole at the um, life of an actress who doesn't have much control over her life in a way that I think we haven't seen before, which I'm very proud of. But it, it's not like dating where it has text on screen and, you know, Instagram montages and stuff. It's There's no screen reality. It's just all two people talking and falling in love, which I think is really fun to watch. Yeah, and I want to yeah. ask you too, Jonah, like about your rom-coms specifically like at midnight dating like what about your rom-coms do you feel like stands out from the rest and what message are you trying to send with your filmmaking well you know it sounds like egotistical or i can say what i tried to do i mean some people pick up on it some people don't one it's really really hard to make a movie dating in new york was intended to be something that had been inside of me for a while where i was very frustrated with a the dating process seeing the way my friends were navigating it and b i didn't think there was a rom-com that that articulately represented modern romance like didn't sound like my friends talking and had to be shootable at the same time too which is the sort of 
third element that maybe a filmmaker wouldn't come on here and talk about, which is I had to be able to do it within a budget and with the actors that I wanted. So the intention of dating in New York, a lot of people say, oh, it's like when Harry met Sally. It was never about having a new plot. The plot was always friends with benefits type. They were originally benefits with, that then turned into friendship. You know, the ending of the movie, the narrator says that they actually don't continue to date. I think I wish I explored that more because that's kind of mo the most interesting part of it. But the intention of that film was, that I think it does really well, is show you the minutia of social media in a way that isn't annoying Netflix show version where it's not Emily in Paris where the text pops on screen, you can't connect to it. It hopefully creates an emotional connection to your phone and to its relationship to romance, to seeing someone post an ex and that feeling on Instagram, to get the I miss you text, to randomly drunk text everyone in your phone book because you're in need of companionship. I also think it explores a character, Jabuki Young White, who plays Milo, does an amazing job of exploring a vulnerable male character in a way that like talks to himself in the mirror and says, you know, I just want to be loved. I don't I don't see a rom-com doing that. You know, Jabuki famous from Twitter, but he's a writer, a comedian and saying, hey, man, I want you to play the lead of a rom-com. You know, he's never had a role like that before. And I, I, I thank him forever for giving me the chance to do that. And Francesca, who had done Stranger Things and had done more genre pieces, same thing. Hey, come be the lead of a rom-com. And I think that that was a really special thing about the movie. So I would say that's what it does well is it, it's hyper relatable in terms of, you know, it's got the comedy too. It's got Kat Cohen and Brian Muller, who actually sort of fell in love in in a real way on set and they're still together. I love Kat Cohen. She's amazing. Yes. She's incredible. Right. So example there is she's now in At Midnight. You know, when I got At Midnight, Paramount Plus, shout out to them because they're my employer. I, there was a role and I was like, cool, this is going to be Kat Cohen. They're like, well, we'll see. Studio approval, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, nope, it's Kat. This is perfect for her. And she is the biggest star. So I felt really lucky to be able to bring people that I worked with onto this new experience, which was going to Mexico for five months and making a movie that had quadruple the budget of dating. By the way, it's still a small budget, but quadruple. And that movie At Midnight, I was able to finally do some things that I felt I had learned from the first film, which is really work on the conflict of each scene and work on the idea of using close-ups and how impactful those can be in the edit for a rom-com, balancing the rom and the com and figuring out how to decide what to do there. And of course, things I took away, which is like, this is actually some director advice. It's a very competitive, difficult field out there to be a filmmaker. It's almost impossible. And let alone once you start to do it, imposter syndrome hits and you're like, oh my God, I watched the movie. They're so much better than me. You know, the second that you realize that you're only as good as what you offer, that you're always going to make your movie. It's always going to be a Jonah Feingold movie and like for better or worse. And so the second I leaned into that, I was like, okay, when I go on pitches now, I say to people, you're going to get a movie that's optimistic, that's playful, that is self-aware, that, you know, has a lot of heart. It might not be the most intense, oh my God, epic movie, like Chris Nolan, like whatever. It's like, but it's going to be like me. And like, that's what you bring to the table. So for At Midnight, it is an overly optimistic view on love and romance set to the beautiful backdrop of the Playa Mujeres in Mexico, where we're showing Mexico in a way that has not been seen in movies anytime that I've recently watched a film. We go to Mexico City, which again, has not been shot in the way that we shot it. It's a big character set piece in our film. And I'm just excited because we subvert a lot of expectations with our film. So I think it's that energy that, that I hope to do with my films moving forward too. Absolutely. Oh my goodness. I'm so excited to watch it when it comes out. I know, me too. It's cute, guys. They're really good. They're like, you know, the movie I'm very proud of because I can sit back and I can watch and be like, well, that's fun. You know, that's, that's really cute and romantic, but that's hard to watch your own work, you know, and then we're all, you know, we're all artists here. And so Dating, I did not feel the same way. Dating, I, I was like, okay, I've seen this a thousand times, but granted, different experience of trying to make that movie, selling the car, raising the financing, begging to life that we get into a festival. It was a lot more on the line. This movie, it's like, let's make something that just really feels great for people. 
and um, leaves them in a good mood. So I think hopefully we'll do that. That's yeah. wonderful, Jonah. And just to wrap it up, because we've had such an amazing time with you on the rom-com room, I want to know if you could tell the world one thing about love, what would it be? Oh, oh my God. Okay. I already quoted Wedding Crashers. <laughs> um, love wins feels too on the nose. I think... There's so much out there. There's so much out there. I mean, oh you know, I think that love doesn't always need to be romantic. I think is something that I've come to terms with, like, you know, loving your friends, loving your yeah. family, obviously, but loving what you do and that you don't necessarily need to be afraid. You know, love can be a scary thing, but I, th I think you should never be afraid of it. I, I wish I had something more profound. You would think someone who makes rom-coms or something more profound to say about love, but you know what it is? Okay, here it is. I'm on a quest to figure out what love is. And like, I love making movies. I love directing. And I know I love directing because when I'm doing it, there's nothing else in the world that matters. I don't get hungry. I don't get tired. I, I, I don't think about anything besides the experience and how I'm doing and how it's impacting the people around me and making sure that my crew and my actors are having a safe and wonderful time doing this. And I think that to me, there's nothing else in my life that does that to me besides being on set, making something with a like-minded group of creative people. So to me, that's the closest thing to what love is. And so when you do find that with somebody or something, perhaps that's love, that it's all you can think of that it embodies you completely. I would say that. That was beautiful. Yes. Something in there. Aww. Probably a good time to mention our code LOVE for 10% off Squarespace. Squarespace uh, <laughs> Life, that's L-O-V-E, 10% off your domain. Jonah, tell the listeners where they can find you and where they can watch your films. Well, everyone, you can find me on, let's say, Instagram and TikTok. I think Instagram is becoming a platform I'm not loving as much, to be honest. I am loving TikTok as a way to discover work and execute on, on like creativity. So just my name, Jonah Feingold. You can watch Dating and New York. The rom-com starring Jabuki Amite, Francesca Rielli, Kat Cohen, Brian Muller, Jerry Ferrara, Taylor Hill, Arturo Castro, Alex Moffat, Sohina Sidhu, Yodoye Travis, and Sandra James on Hulu and on Amazon. And you can check out at midnight the Paramount Plus rom-com with Diego Bonetta, Monica Barbaro, Kat Cohen, Casey Thomas Brown. I'm forgetting a bunch of names. But you can watch that coming Q1 or Q2 of next year on Paramount Plus. You can follow information on my Instagram about that movie. Yeah, Anders home, Whitney comes. Jonah, you've been amazing. We've had such a fun time having you on the rom-com room. Listeners, let us know your thoughts. Tell us if you go and see one of Jonah's movies. Tell us what you think about love and your favorite rom-com from each era. Make sure to slide to our DMs at MeetCute. Again, I'm Kendra. You can find me on Instagram and TikTok at Kenten Hollywood. Yes, and I'm Mercedes. You can find me on GB 11 on Twitter, IG, and TikTok. This was wonderful. Thank you so much, Jonah. I really appreciate you guys taking the time and inviting me onto the show, and I hope to do this again soon. We'll do a part two at some point hey. in 20 years. Hey.